We're in Wiltwick Cemetery in Kingston, New York. It was founded clear back in 1856. In a printed booklet about the Wiltwick Rural Cemetery Association, authorized by the trustees in 1916, the following paragraphs were inserted in the preface. The stated aims of the trustees then are the same in the 21st century as they were then. There is no disposition to interfere with preferences and tastes, but the stability of the improvements, the good appearance of the grounds, a proper mode of burial, and a respectful observance of the sacredness of the place requires that some of the rights of the individuals be secondary to the general good. It is the aim of the trustees to make Wiltwick a quiet, beautiful resting place for the dead, where well-kept turf, the foliage of trees, and the unbroken quiet give a sense of repose. We've got a lot of interesting figures interred here at Wiltwick. We've got Alton Parker, who was a political figure, John Vanderlyn, who was a famous painter, a World War II Congressional Medal of Honor recipient, many other historical figures. We're bringing them all to you today. This is Stones, Bones, and Shadows. back, friends and taphophiles. I'm your host, Lachelle. We made it through the holiday season in one piece, and I hope you did too. Hopefully you had many great memories with your friends and family this holiday season. We're excited to be back and bring you lots of great episodes on Stones, Bones, and Shadows. One little change that you're going to see this next year that you might not be too jazzed about is that we're going to be releasing episodes every other week instead of every week. Taylor has a new job and it is a lot of work. So all the great work that she does for us on Stones, Bones, and Shadows with the editing and adding the fun music backgrounds and putting it all out there on, on the listening platforms it's a lot of work and she's having a time getting it all done. So we're so grateful that she does all of this for us. So we continue to do this fun podcast and bring it to you that we decided to do every other Monday release. And that'll give her a little bit of breathing room. And so thank you, Taylor, for all you do. And for all of you listeners for continuing to tune in and talk to us on social media and your comments and your likes and we're just really appreciative to all of you and you make that you make this a really fun podcast to bring to you so today I've got Hannah Sparrigan and 
she is going to tell us about Wiltwick Cemetery in Kingston, New York. It's a really fun cemetery that has an old section and a newer garden cemetery section. And there's some really interesting people here that I can't wait for you to hear about. So with that, let's go to our interview. We're so lucky today to have Hannah Sparrigan from Wiltwick Cemetery, which is in Kingston, New York. Welcome, Hannah. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. Yes, we're so lucky to have you. So we were talking on social media about the cemetery and how you have some fun stories and notable people that are buried there. And we thought, what the heck? Let's talk about Wiltwick Cemetery. <laughs> Definitely. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got to be where you are at the cemetery. <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, uh, so I live actually right outside of one of the main entrances. I live oh, on really? Pine Grove Avenue. Yeah. And I basically can make a right, uh, right outside of my front door and I'm in the cemetery. I live right outside it. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure a lot of people right now would be wanting me to ask a whole different set of questions about what it's like to live next to a cemetery. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> quiet, I can tell you that much. You have very quiet neighbors. <laughs> very, very. <laughs> but that's honestly how I came to to start looking through it. You know, I'm something of a taffophile. Mm -hmm. I originally am from Brooklyn. And I had volunteered at Greenwood Cemetery. And so I already sort of had a love of cemeteries prior to living in Kingston. Uh, and when my family and I came to live, you know, move here, the fact that we lived right next to one, I was like, oh, I got to explore. And so I started to just walk around and, and took a look at the monuments. And the superintendent, uh, Matthew Cerny, had put out a notice on Facebook saying he was looking for volunteers. And since my mom and I had volunteered for Greenwood in the past, we figured, oh, why not? And that's sort of how I started working with with, with um, Wiltwick, was from my past experience with Greenwood. It's, okay, well, you know, I know you guys don't have tours just yet, but I can help you with social media. And that was what we offered to do. We offered help with social media and with tours. And... Initially, you just volunteer, and then I transitioned to a little part-time gig for them, helping them create content for their uh, Facebook and Instagram accounts. Oh, that's fun. It's been real nice. It's been nice to especially highlight a lot of Wiltwick's uh, history. It's got 167 years worth. So it's nice to share that. Let's just dig right into the history at Wiltwick. All right, so Wiltwick itself was founded in March of 1856, and in, from the get-go, it was founded as a non-sectarian or non-denominational uh, cemetery. So it has no affiliation with any particular congregation or church. And they bought several acres of land, specifically starting at Pine Grove, Avenue. This is that this section of the cemetery is called the old section because it was the first section of land bought by the trustees to then be cleared and uh, leveled for the sale of plots. And that particular uh, section is filled with tons of old Victorian 
uh, obelisks and monuments and symbolism galore. I oh, love it. Yeah, it's really gorgeous. Uh, we have a lot of Civil War soldiers buried in that particular section. That's what I was going to say is with the date being 18... Right, right. Yes, yes. So we have a lot of those. And the first section of that cemetery, the older section, it was simply designed as a grid. You know, it's got avenues and streets and it's very grid-like. And it, it served its purpose and it's quite lovely. And in 1881, the New York West Shore and Buffalo Railroads made an offer to the trustees and said, if you give us two acres of your land, we'll give you $5,000 for it. And at the time, mm. the trustees were like, well, you know, we need to expand. We need more land to continue serving Kingston and Ulster County. You know, we can, we can only do so much with what we have right now. And so they decided to, after about like a year of deliberation, accept the money from the railroads. And $5,000 back then, it's about $146,000 now. <laughs> yeah, so it was quite a decent amount of money. And what the trustees decided to do is, with that money, continue to expand the cemetery. And around 1844 is when they decided to buy more land so they could have more plots available. And that section of the cemetery is affectionately referred to as the new section, even though it's now over a hundred years old as well. And the trustees had put out the word, hey, we've got this land, we're looking for people to submit designs, you know, for it. Because around this time, that was when garden cemeteries were very popular, that kind of architectural landscaping was very popular. And in 1905, the trustees of the cemetery accepted a proposal, a design, uh, from none other than Downing Vox, who was the son of Calvert Vox, uh, the same guy who designed uh, Central Park and Prospect Park and, and all that. So the new section of our cemetery uh, is... <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah. It's quite different from the old, because... Since it was designed as a garden cemetery, you know, it no longer has that very structured grid. It has winding paths, and every path is curved. There's no straight line. <laughs> really gorgeous. It's really, really interesting, the, the difference in terms of architectural landscaping. Right. And I've been to both of those kinds of cemeteries. I know just what you're saying. Yeah. So that's sort of how the cemetery continued to expand and... As of today, the cemetery is, we have a total of about 85 acres. Okay, so it's pretty big. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's quite sizable. Um, 65 of those are developed and are in use. And the 20 or so is simply left as natural wooded area. Mm, how nice. So that's the overall general history of Wiltwick. That was how it was founded. Yeah, that's really awesome. I love the Central Park architect in mm -hmm. there. That's really cool. <laughs> he was a neat guy. I think it's sort of overshadowed by his father, sadly. <laughs> but I don't know much about them. About uh, Calvert and Olmsted mm -hmm. or about Downing? <laughs> Either. <laughs> uh, so Calvert, Vox, and uh, Olmsted, they had designed 
Central Park in Manhattan. And that's a completely man-made park. It's quite beautiful. And they designed a lot of parks and other particular places all across, I think, mostly the Northeast. Mm -hmm. And Downing Vox was uh, Calvert Vox's son, who sadly isn't as revered. He's kind of stuck in his dad's shadow <laughs> a little uh -huh. bit. That happens sometimes. Yeah, yeah, sadly. <laughs> but he had a hand in helping his father design those projects. Um, right, I mean, Riverside Drive is another one that Calvert Vox and Downing Vox uh, helped design, and that's in New York City. Um, as well as the estate grounds of what's called the Wilderstein Historic Site, and that's in Rhinebeck. That's like across from us on the Hudson River. Okay. And they had a huge hand in that. They're big, big architectural landscape artists. That's really awesome. Obviously, I still need some more um, digging around in New York. I haven't, <laughs> haven't ever been. I oh, okay. I've jumped off, you know, on a trip from there before, but I haven't done much exploring yet. Okay, okay. Well, if you ever come back to the East Coast, shoot me an email. I've got a whole bunch of suggestions of places to go. <laughs> Aw, thanks. I will. All right, so let's see. I heard that you have some pretty interesting people that are residing there in Wildwick. Yeah. So I figured I'd highlight three of them, so not to overwhelm you too much. <laughs> <laughs> you can't overwhelm me too much when it comes to cemeteries. <laughs> <laughs> so the first guy I'm going to tell you about is sort of the connection that we had to your podcast, because you had done an entire episode on the Titanic. Yeah. And we happened to have a what's called a cenotaph to one of the victims of the Titanic. And that's essentially a monument of sorts to someone who their body was never found. Mm -hmm. And we have a man by the name of William Gwynn buried in our cemetery. And he was what was called a sea postal clerk. And he specifically worked for the postal system on ships, sorting mail, and it was quite a, a important job and paid pretty well for back in the day. Uh, they were paid about 1000 to maybe $1,200 a year, which for around 1912 is like a decent amount. <laughs> it doesn't sound great now, but... <laughs> right. <laughs> we can't compare to now. <laughs> right, 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 right. But uh, he was born in February of 1876. And he was reported to be six foot four, which at the time is quite tall for the average height. He was married. He had two kids with his wife. He was, at the time, living in England in Southampton and got word that his wife was ill. And so instead of coming back home on the ship, the Philadelphia, he tried to push his schedule a little ahead and said, put me on the Titanic. I want to get home to my wife. Aww. Yeah. Yeah. And he was one of five postal clerks on the Titanic. There were three American and two British. And, you know, the RMS Titanic, it stands for a Royal Mail Steamer. That was a massive part of what the Titanic had on board was mail. Yeah. Yeah. They had about 3,364 bags of mail. 
I didn't know that. Yeah, these five guys would essentially spend the entire voyage sorting those 3,000 plus bags and handling something like 400,000 pieces of mail and worked 14 hour days. Yeah, yeah. So that was what Kim and his other colleagues were doing. And at the time that the Titanic hit the iceberg, they were celebrating uh, one of the other postal clerks' 44th birthday. Aww. Yeah, yeah. It's just a whole bunch of really Aww. bad instances, one right after the other. And where the mailroom was located on the Titanic was lower down in the ship. So when it hit the iceberg, the mailroom immediately started to flood. And part of their job was to protect the mail at all costs. That was what they signed up for. And so what they did was they ran out of their beds that late at night and started to bring sacks of mail up to the higher decks. And they were seen doing this in about two feet of water. And there were several crew members who tried to say, get up, you know, there's, there's no point. Stop doing what you're doing. It's not going to end well. They all refused. They said, no, this is our job. We're going to do what we were told to do, what we're paid to do. And accounts differ as to where William Gwynn was, you know, at the time of the sinking. Some say that there was an explosion and that that's what took them out. Some say that it was the mailroom continuing to fill with water and that he worked till he was waist deep, skewing bags and bringing them up to the higher decks. But sadly, regardless of how he passed, his body was never recovered and he went down with the ship. His wife was eventually told they waited to tell her because they, they felt that she could not handle the news. And Aww. yeah. My heart. <laughs> <laughs> it really is quite sad. You know, she, there, there she is with two young kids. And Congress allotted uh, $2,000 to each of the families of the postal clerks since they were lost at sea. Yeah. He was 37 years old. And so was he from Kingston? He was actually born uh, in New York City. Um, and he and his wife lived in Jersey for quite a while. Um, and actually, our cenotaph isn't the only monument that has his name on it. Uh, there is another uh, cemetery called Mount Hope Cemetery. And it has a monument to him as well not just for his bravery and service on the Titanic and being a sea postal clerk, but also for uh, serving in the Spanish-American War. Okay. There's a plaque in England in Southampton that is made out of brass from one of the spare propellers of the Titanic. And it's in memory to both the three American postal clerks and the two British. Oh, I like that. Yeah, yeah. It's nice. It's a nice, he's got three different spots where he's memorialized. And I'm sure that he just thought, I'm just a postal clerk, <laughs> you know, not that important in life. It's just, and then here now he has these big memorials. And... Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, there's many different uh, websites that honor his service. Um, the Smithsonian has a whole section on their own website. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And I really love that. That's part of the reason that 
I named that episode the Titanic Unmarked Sepulchers because there were so many that went down with the ship and they never found. Uh, a staggering amount. The Titanic itself is basically their grave. Yeah. It's an interesting episode if you haven't listened to it. But yes, I love that. I have another figure um, as well who is buried on a grounds. Not a Titanic <laughs> victim, um, but more of a political figure. And his name is Alton Brooks Parker. And his biggest claim to fame uh, was essentially running for uh, the Democratic presidential nominee. Um, oh. Yeah, yeah. And my mom and I like to joke that his particular headstone, <laughs> he has his resume. It's not loving father. It's not doting husband. It's, I did this, I did this, I was this, I did this, I was the president of this. <laughs> was quite an accomplished man, but it is interesting to sort of see that sentimentality kind of left off. <laughs> yeah. What people decide should be on others... Headstones is always interesting to me. Yeah. So he was born on May 14th in 1852 in a place called Cortland, New York. And that's, it's around Ulster County. It's near Ulster County. So here in upstate New York. And he served on the New York Supreme Court. He had a pretty busy, uh, successful law practice. And he was relatively involved in politics as well. He was thought to be a very good speaker. And for the most part, um, it was, I hate to say unopinionated, but he was very careful with not giving his opinion on things. Hmm. Yeah, he was quite neutral compared to a lot of his fellow politicians and uh, lawyers. Right. And for a politician... Seems like opinion's a pretty big part of that. <laughs> yeah. It was in 1904 that he was chosen by the Democratic uh, National Convention. They said, you're our man, you're running for president, you know. And the reason that they chose him was because he was so unopinionated, he didn't piss anybody off. <laughs> <laughs> like, he didn't there make waves, go. so clearly nobody can be upset by our candidate. He hasn't... State his opinion. It's great. <laughs> and what he tried to do initially, he was hesitant. He really kind of didn't want to. He's like, eh, I like law. I don't really want to do this. <laughs> he pushed and pushed. And he finally was like, okay, fine, fine. I'll run. And so what he tried to do was continue being neutral during his presidential campaign. Okay. <laughs> and he, what he also tried to do was something called a front porch campaign, which is something that McKinley did prior, which was quite successful, where McKinley decided, no, everybody can come to me. They can come to my house. I'm not going to go out. They can come to me, and I'll answer questions, and I'll be interviewed. Hmm. And Alton thought he could do the same. He's like, well, let's do this. It worked before. Let's try a front porch campaign. The only problem being... <laughs> That he lives Nobody so... Came. Oh, God, no. Oh. <laughs> Absolutely no one. He lives so far out, nobody wanted to come and visit him. Aww. And sadly, along with 
making quite a, a fumble of that, he was running against none other than Teddy Roosevelt. Right. And so, of course, oh. Roosevelt won in a landslide. And oh, yeah. this guy, he just went, all right, okay, and went back to practicing law. <laughs> that works for me. I mean, really, it was quite like, you know, he kind of was like, oh, that works. Okay, congrats. I'm going back to my practice. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't want to do it anyway. <laughs> I didn't. He, the newspapers even made fun of him for, for putting it off and for denying the, den the nomination. It was quite crazy. <laughs> well, that's really interesting. And he did have a family and everything, but it didn't say much on his headstone. No, you know, the crazy thing is he's got all of his, you know, accomplishments, lawyer of this, Supreme Court, New York Supreme Court. And on the sides, it's quite a, a large headstone. On the sides are where his wife and children, their names are carved. It has okay. nothing of father or anything like that. You know, it's just he's front and center and then they're on the sides. <laughs> more about and I know in different times it could be a little different you know about right what you did was more important than who you were right right yeah and it shows especially on his, on his tombstone yeah. well that's really interesting and I have a third figure um and this is a civil war uh veteran who was quite influential and important throughout the civil war and his name was Colonel George Sharp. Oh, yeah. Oh, you know about him. Oh, oh okay. I've read, you know, all the Shara books with the... Uh, uh, right now, it's not... Like, Gods and Generals. Yeah. Okay, all right. So he's Those a are good books. Mm-hmm. Yeah, General Sharp. We know about him. He's buried in our cemetery, and he was born on February 26th, 1828, here in Kingston. Okay. Yeah, so he's a local guy, and he went and got his law degree, and was practicing law, and was in a successful firm up until the start of the Civil War. And when Lincoln asked for people to join and to fight, he said, sure, okay, no problem signed up, led a few regiments for a couple of months, and then returned back to civilian life. And it was probably about a year or so later that he was asked to return, but not necessarily serving as a captain, but to lead what was called the Bureau of Military Information, or the BMI. And it was really the precursor to the CIA. That's really cool. Yeah. They had agents and scouts collecting information from, like, Confederate deserted soldiers, from prisoners, former enslaved people. And with this information, they would intercept certain Confederate, you know, uh, regiments. They would find out where it was best to move Union soldiers. They also intercepted letters and telegraphs. It was quite a in-depth group of people. It was about 70 people. Interesting. And it was, technically wasn't that many. You would think it'd be more. It was only about 70 people who worked for the BMI. And it existed for three years. They used it all throughout the Civil War. And it actually ended up, the information that they collected was pivotal towards the Battle of Gettysburg. 
which was a huge, huge turning point. Wow. Yeah. And George Sharp commanded the BMI for three years until the end of the war. And after that, he just went, all right, okay, cool. Returned to civilian life, returned to his law practice until about two years later, he was asked to go to Europe to investigate Americans who were supposedly involved with Lincoln's assassination. Oh. Yeah. They said, you've got good skills, you're a spy, go find these people, interrogate them, find them, you know, find out if they had anything to do with Lincoln's assassination. They didn't, he said, I didn't find anything, nothing came of it. And so they went, okay, all right, you're good, yeah. you're off the hook. He came home, <laughs> returned again to civilian life, and had a, a lovely marriage, had three kids, and continued to practice law and be involved in local politics till he died on uh, January 13th, 1900, at 71. Oh, wow. That's awesome. And what a groundbreaking program they started there. Yeah. I would think a lot of people don't know about that. Usually not. Um, the BMI isn't something that's widely known about. It's only when you Google his name <laughs> that it comes up. Exactly. Now BMI means a whole different thing. Yeah, the BMI is just Bureau of Military Information. So it was just strictly used during the Civil War. Um, after that, you know, it'd be some time before the CIA was officially created. It was the first of its kinds in terms of that kind of intelligence agency. That's so cool. So I have a person from Wiltwick Cemetery that I wanted to tell about as well. And as I mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, there's a famous painter there. I dabble in art. And so I thought that this was really interesting on a personal level. His name is John Vanderlyn. And he lived from October 18th, 1775 to September 23rd, 1852. And he was an American neoclassicist painter. So awesome. He was born there in Kingston, New York, and was the grandson of colonial portrait painter Pieter Vanderlyn. And he was employed by a print seller in New York and was first instructed in art by Archibald Robinson, a Scotsman who was afterwards one of the directors of the American Academy of Fine Arts. Then he went to Philadelphia where he spent some time in the studio of Gilbert Stewart and copied some of Stewart's portraits, including one of Aaron Burr, who placed him under Gilbert Stewart as a pupil. He was actually a protege of Aaron Burr, which that's a name we should all know, who in 1796 sent Vandalin to Paris, where he studied in Paris for five years. He then returns to the, to the United States in 1801 and lived in the home of Aaron Burr, who was then the vice president, where he painted the well-known portraits of Burr and his daughter. In 1802, he painted two views of Niagara Falls, which were engraved and published in London in 1804. He then returns to Paris in 1803 
He visits England in 1805 and he paints the death of Jane McCree. He then goes to Rome where he paints his picture of Marius amid the ruins of Carthage, which was shown in Paris and obtained the Napoleon Gold Medal. This success causes him to remain in Paris for seven more years, during which time he prospered greatly. In 1812, he showed a nude Adriadne, which is now in the Pennsylvania Academy, and this just really increased his fame. And so when Aaron Burr fled to Paris, Vanderlyn was for a time his only support. Vandalin returned to the United States in 1815, and he started painting portraits of various very eminent men, including James Monroe, John C. Calhoun, Governor Joseph C. Yates, Governor George Clinton, James Madison, many, many famous men, Andrew Jackson, Zachary Taylor. And in 1834, he completed a posthumous full-length portrait of George Washington for the U.S. House of Representatives. Isn't that awesome? I was like, wow, we all know this very famous painting. If you see the painting, you will definitely recognize it. He also exhibited panoramas and built the Rotunda in New York City, which displayed panoramas of Paris, Athens, Mexico, Versailles, and some battle pieces, but neither his portraits nor the panoramas brought him the financial success, partly because he worked very slowly. But his work is very good, so I guess it just really, you know, it, took, it takes time. It takes time to make these masterpieces. In 1825, Vandalin was one of the founders of the National Academy of Design and taught at its school in 1842. Through friendly influences, he was commissioned by Congress to paint the landing of Columbus for the rotunda of the United States Capitol. Wow! Going to Paris, he hired a French artist who, it is said, did most of the work. So, air quotes, who knows? It was engraved for the United States $5 banknotes. This painting was later reproduced in an engraving used in the Colombian two-cent postage issued of 1893. He was the first American to study in France instead of England and to acquire accurate draughtsmanship. He was more academic than his fellows, but though faithfully and capably executed, it was thought that his work was rather devoid of charm, including the 1911 Encyclopedia Britannica. His landing of Columbus has been called by Appleton's Cyclopedia hardly more than respectable. Well, I think it's pretty good, so you'll have to judge for yourself what you think. And some of these other portraits I will post and you can see what you think yourself. He died in poverty in Kingston, New York on September 23rd, 1852 and is also buried at Wiltwick Rural Cemetery in Kingston. So Hannah, I read that you have witness cremations there at Wiltwick. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So witness cremations are a service that we offer at Wiltwick that essentially we equate it to a graveside service. 
instead of having a grade site service, a family can stay in our, what is we call a, our viewing room. They can sit in this room, which has windows with blinds, and they can watch as their loved one's casket is put into one of our retorts, and they can witness the very beginning of the cremation process, or they can actually even step into our crematory facility and be there in the room as the casket is being put into the retort. I see. I can see how that would be kind of comforting, I mean, being able to say goodbye and not just like, you know, they go off to be cremated and... Right, right. That's exactly why we, we offer that option. We find that it helps a lot of families with closure, that it removes the mystery sure. of cremation. It's not some dark and scary thing. No, it's, it's just the next step. And a lot of families, you know, depending on their religion, sometimes there are certain uh, people that's it's part of their religion to do a witness mm -hmm. cremation. Others, they simply yes. choose to. Yeah. But we find that it helps greatly in closure and in saying goodbye. I can see how that would be and like how you equated it to a graveside service. So will they have a little service and say goodbye to their loved one? And we are able to set up the viewing room with about 26 chairs. We have a podium if anyone wants to give eulogies. We've got a speaker system set up if they want to play their loved one's favorite music. Um, that's how it sort of is similar to a graveside service. It's just simply within our crematory. And we find that a lot of people, it gives them a great deal of closure and it helps with the grieving process to remove that mystery and to see it happen. You know, I really like that. I heard of that from my friend Russ that's been on the podcast before and we talked about his journey in becoming a mortician and uh you know you first hear about it and you're like huh right right but the more more I think I'm like you know I really think that that could be a beautiful thing and yeah it's, I mean, it's lovely back to the beginning of time and they would send off mm -hmm. ships a blaze, you know, out if you were maybe a Viking or something, or you know, if you were a Native American, you know, they would build a big pyre and put them up, and you know, so there's a lot of mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. know, cremation that happened throughout time, mm -hmm. and I think witnessing it was part of it. Oh, yeah, yeah, and now, um, actually, a great deal of the U.S. population is choosing cremation more than ever. Um, it's something like 57% of the U.S. population is choosing cremation. And so we find that having this extra option available to families, it's, it's a nice thing to give them that option of here. Like, you don't have to be completely in the dark as to what's happening if you or your loved one chooses cremation. It's not some scary dark, ominous thing. It's quite accessible and we encourage people 
to come to see our facility, to see what it's like and to understand it's, it's not dark, it's not mysterious. And we have mm-hmm. posts on our Instagram and posts on our Facebook that show our facilities, including the retorts, so people can really see yeah. this is what it's like. Well, you've done a great job with your social media. Thanks. <laughs> I do try. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's a lot of really great photos. I love the one recently of, I don't know if it's a morning lady or a... Oh. Was it an angel that's covered in snow? Yeah, those were three of our smaller monuments that were... Yeah, they're all mournful ladies covered in snow that we had here recently. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was. it's kind of beautiful. Yeah, yeah. We like to think so, though I would fully admit I am biased. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> Tell us about if we wanted to come visit. Do you have days that you have tours or is it just open every day? So it depends on how busy, you know, we do about 1,200 cremations a year. And we do typically, you can come and see our facilities. We always encourage that. You can give us a call. You can email us. Um, and ask to view our facilities. We would just have to make sure that it's not, you know, in use at the time and that there isn't a service being done. But we're very, very open to anybody coming in and saying, hey, I want to see what this looks like. I want to see what you offer. And we've also had open houses where we've invited the public to come take a tour, see the entire space, and ask us as many questions as they want. Yeah. Are there still new internments in the outside, in the cemetery? Yeah, we still do uh, regular burials, and we also have a community mausoleum where uh, if people want to have uh, crypts, they can have buy crypts. We also have niches for cremation urns. Um, so, And those are quite popular. They're also very customizable, which I think people do like. They get to put pictures of their loved ones next to the urns they get to some people will decorate it for different holidays so we do have Uh the usual (laughs) stuff that goes along with the cemetery burials and and stuff like that i've always liked that when they can have a picture and maybe a few mementos or something in the niche that just really adds that bit of personalization you know of who's there yeah, I think that's why they're so popular, because it gives that, gives the loved ones uh, the ability to go, you know, here's my husband's favorite, you know, picture of us together, here's this, and then it's, it's a way to really remember them and to make it really personal to each, each family. And of course, I love the stories, right? You know, I love finding more about each of the people who lived, and so... When there's a few mementos in a photo and mm-hmm. it just seems like you get a little bit more about who that person was. Yeah, it's true. It's not just a name with dates. You can see what they looked like and get an idea of their personality and who they were when they were alive. Yeah, that's neat. So outside, do you do tours? Mm-hmm. Yep, we do. Uh, we've done a couple of historic tours where we highlight uh, not only the three people I talked about, but other uh, larger figures buried here as well, as well as some local uh, favorites. And we have those tours on a fairly regular basis, um, usually in the warmer months. And we've also had nature tours 
and we're currently working on planning a strictly a military tour to highlight more of the Civil War veterans that we have on our grounds. Hannah Sparagain, we're so happy to have had you on today. Thank you for telling us about these interesting figures in history. We really think that those are awesome stories and love to hear all the historic stories. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so if you're in the Kingston area, go visit Hannah <laughs> and these other gentlemen. <laughs> go say hello. Thank you, Hannah. I'd like to thank Hannah Sparrigan from Wiltwick Cemetery for coming on today and telling us a little bit about herself and Wiltwick Cemetery and these really incredible humans that we got to talk about today and hear their stories. And we hope you'll join us next time as we come with more history and amazing cemeteries to tell you about. We're grateful to be back and that all of you are here with us today. This was Stones, Bones, and Shadows. You can see photos and more information about the cemeteries we explore and find our sources at stonesbonesandshadowspodcast.com. Also, don't forget to check us out on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and even TikTok, where you can interact with us. As always, we love to hear from our listeners. <laughs>